0: Welcome to the and Barnes podcast series. My name is Brad Benningfield, I'm co-chair of the nonprofit practice here at and Barnes. Uh, we do tax and governance work for nonprofits in New England and beyond. Uh, Eleanor, would you like to tell them about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm Eleanor Evans, I'm Brad's colleague here in the nonprofit practice. and just joined the firm recently after having been a number of years in-house at a large nonprofit here in the Boston area.
0: So Eleanor and I are going to talk about nonprofits with members, what role the members play in some of the problems that arise when nonprofits have membership structures. And let me start with an example. I recently had a client that came to us that was looking to merge with another nonprofit. And this merger was really important to this client because the the client was having financial difficulties, and they found the right partner, and they had a plan for moving forward, and they talked together about how it would work programmatically, how it would work financially, and then at a relatively late stage, they brought the lawyers in. And the lawyers sat down and mapped everything out, and one of the things that we discovered, and this was fairly close to when they wanted to do the merger was that the board of directors of our nonprofit couldn't do what they thought they could do. The board of directors thought, you know, we've got all this lined up, we're going to have a vote, we're going to merge, and it's going to be great. And suddenly they discovered... Uh, that they had this membership structure and the members needed to get together and do something and they had no idea who the members were. Um, how does this happen, Eleanor? What are members and what role do they play in a nonprofit?
1: Sure. Well, let me just take a step back and talk a little bit about some history of nonprofit corporation law in many places. Uh, In the past, many states, including Massachusetts, required all nonprofit corporations to have members. Over time, states have been doing away with this requirement, and in most states today, A nonprofit, when it's setting up can choose whether it wants to have members or not and if it does not have members then it would just be governed by a self-perpetuating board of directors
0: this is what we tend to see more commonly today right (laughs) a self-perpetuating board they make all the decisions they run the day-to-day and that's it
1: absolutely unless it's an organization that is being set up to serve its members and provide opportunities for governance for them. For example, associations clearly are set up to have members and will choose to give their members voting rights because they're there to serve their constituent members, whether it's a trade association or a professional association, for example. Other types of organizations, such as advocacy organizations, may be seeking the grassroots support of members, and so they may choose to have members. But I would agree that most nonprofits that we see opt not to have members and just to go with a self-perpetuating board. But when there are members involved, the members get rights to vote on certain very important things, including appointing and in some cases removing directors, including amending the articles of incorporation and the bylaws. And in your example, approving key transactions involving the corporation, whether it's a merger or dissolution or other important transactions.
0: So the members aren't involved in like the day-to-day running of the charity, but they sit behind it. They have the ability to affect who serves on the board and does run the day-to-day of the charity. And if there's a major thing happening, the members kind of step in and get involved, kind of like shareholders. Exactly,
1: like Like shareholders in a for-profit corporation, except since it's nonprofit, the members don't have an ownership stake Mm -hmm. in the organization.
0: Right, right.
1: But I also just want to... distinguish here between the type of members we're talking about and other types of members that a nonprofit might have. So many of you may be familiar with, say, joining a museum and becoming a member of the museum and getting discounts or joining a public radio station as a member and getting a newsletter and other types of information from the organization. And in that case, you probably will find that you do not get to vote on key transactions are on who the board members are of those organizations. In that case, those organizations are basically taking supporters and calling them members to make them feel like they have a bigger stake in the organization. But those types of members don't actually get to vote or have involvement in some of these key governance issues that we're talking about today.
0: Right. And this creates a lot of confusion. A lot of people um, aren't sure if they know they have members, they're not sure who their members are from a corporate perspective, who actually has voting rights as opposed to being this sort of softer type of member that you're describing. And a lot of organizations that um, uh, have been around for a long time don't realize that they have members. So in my example, this organization had many, many years ago been aware of their members and then the board of directors had looked at their bylaws and said, we don't want members anymore. We're going to revise the bylaws to get rid of the members, make this a self-perpetuating board. And then they moved on. And then over the years, they continued to revise the bylaws and appoint new boards of directors and said, no, no, we don't have members. That was the old days they had members, and we don't anymore. Look, our bylaws now don't say anything about members. So why didn't that work, Eleanor?
1: Well, because in the original articles of incorporation, they specified that the organization did have members, and this is a very common mistake that nonprofits make, is their boards and others involved in the governance are very familiar with the bylaws, right. and they pull the bylaws out at the board meetings, but they don't remember that there's this other important document out there called the Articles of Incorporation, or here in Massachusetts we call it Articles of Organization, and that document takes precedence over the bylaws. It's right. what the organization filed with the state to become a corporation. And so it's very important when making changes to the bylaws and on important issues such as getting rid of members to check the articles and see what they say about members and to amend the articles as well.
0: So in, in the case of of my example, they've got this merger coming. They need somebody's told them you've got these members. They don't see it in their bylaws. Uh, where do they go to find that out and what specifically do they need to look at?
1: Sure. So in Massachusetts, you go to the Secretary of the Commonwealth's website and you put in the name of the organization in their corporate entity search and pull up the organization and you look at all the filings for that organization and you will see there the articles and you'll see any amendments to the articles or restatements or articles of merger that might have changed over time and what you want to do is look from the very beginning and look at every version of the articles from day one to the present to determine what they said in the past and what's changed over time and what they say now about members in the corporation and who those members may be
0: now hopefully what you'll find when you go back and look at uh the articles and and to underscore that point you don't want to just look at the most recent articles you need to go back and look at the whole history of them uh, to find out you know who the members were and who might currently have these these voting rights, hopefully what you 'll find is that it 's a fairly limited universe of people that perhaps there are twenty people who were listed as members, maybe ten of them are still alive um, or you might find in there that it that the articles say we have members, but the members are the board of directors from time to That's time that 's
1: right, and a lot of Nonprofits have that because of that requirement back in the day that all nonprofits have members. Many organizations set themselves up such that the board members were also the members of the corporation.
0: So if that's the case, if you've got one where the board members are also the members and the board members have been meeting as board members and doing all of these things, uh, but they haven't met as members, they've just met as the board of directors, is there anything they need to do or are they okay?
1: Well, because there were separate classes of folks here, the members and the board, they actually need to have separate meetings and take separate actions. And so that's true for organizations that intend to have members. And um, so it's very important to have separate members' meetings from board meetings. So in that your situation, what would need to take place where the board thought that they got rid of members and help, and maybe the board members are, you know, the members. Right. They, the board, could then today meet as the members of the corporation and take the vote to amend the articles to get rid of members, and then, um, and then that would be filed with the secretary of state those articles of amendment, mm-hmm. um, and then the board would have. I mean the members would no longer exist and the board would meet and then could ratify actions that were taken uh, in the interim between the time when they thought they got rid of members to the present.
0: Right. So in that situation, it's fairly easy to remedy. You need to do it because you don't want to have any doubt as to who has the power to do the things you need to do, including this merger transaction that's going to save the charity in my example. Um, But there are more difficult situations where the members are not the board of directors from time to time, and they're not 10 individuals. I had one situation where we found out that there were members, and the members were everyone who lived in a certain part of Boston, which was a large piece of Boston, and everyone who has ever used the charitable services of this facility, which was thousands and thousands of people. You're not going to be able to get, even if you could identify who they are, you're not going to be able to get thousands and thousands of people into a room to get a quorum, to get a vote, to vote themselves out as members, ratify the new board of directors, and let the new board of directors do the things that the charity needs to do. So in that situation, there's a special mechanism for how you deal with that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure.
1: So state nonprofit corporation law, um, usually provides a procedure for nonprofits to petition a state official, usually the Secretary of State, to allow the nonprofit to amend its articles if it doesn't know who the members are. And here in Massachusetts, we have such a procedure. And so often these procedures will include attempting to identify and contact members and giving notice of this opportunity to vote on this transaction. And that's often done through publicizing the meeting or the opportunity to vote in a newspaper or some Mm -hmm. other broad-based publication. And what the nonprofit would do is coordinate closely with the secretary of state's office and discuss with them how best to go through this and of course look at the statute and and hopefully also work with an attorney to guide you through that process.
0: Yeah, and this happens not infrequently here in Massachusetts because we have so many nonprofits that historically had members and those membership structures were often very broad and diffuse. It comes up now that that uh, organizations need are at some big inflection point and they need Um, somebody to make a decision, and they discover that they have these members that they'd forgotten about and that the members are in the thousands. Uh, In that situation, the Secretary of the Commonwealth's Office has seen a number of these, and so they they have uh, a system in place and a process in place to intake them. It's extremely important to go to them and work with them from the beginning, um, you're you're going to have to uh, try to identify as best you can who those members are. You're going to need to take reasonable steps to get in front of them. That could be putting flyers up in the community. Uh, if there's a particular facility people are visiting, putting flyers up in that facility, letting them know when the meeting's going to be to take this action um putting uh, something in the newspaper as you said is one way to try to get out in front of people then you're going to need to demonstrate to the secretary of commonwealth's office that you did the best you could to find out who the members are and to let them know that this meeting was happening and then you document the meeting how many people showed up how how much what, what they voted for file your petition with the secretary of the commonwealth's office and we found them to be very reasonable and very helpful in In as long as you do all those things and as long as you've checked in with them in advance to make sure that the notice you're sending out is sufficient in their eyes rather than just doing it and then hoping for the best afterwards. We found that to be a really effective way to address these membership structures uh, going forward.
1: And one thing that's also really important is looking at if you do have members, how are they defined in your articles? And to be sure that it's very specific and measurable Mm -hmm. as to who your members are so that it's not like you said, everybody in a particular neighborhood or anyone who's ever received services from the nonprofit, but Mm -hmm. to, you know, have a very specific thing, you know, many organizations, members pay dues. So of course that's an easy way to keep track. Well, maybe not easy, but a specific way to keep, manageable way to keep track is people who have dues or who have affirmatively made some effort to become a member.
0: Right. So you mentioned some of the positive reasons why, you know, we've been talking about memberships as, as sort of a negative thing that that's a problem to deal with. You've talked about some of the positive reasons why somebody might want a membership structure, where you've got, you know, a particular community, a, a, a cooperative association where, where people are, um, uh, where you want those people to have a voice in the direction of the organization. Um, what are some, some negative consequences of having you know membership structures that are maybe too easy for people to get into or too broad and too diffuse
1: sure well sometimes what can happen is a controversy might arise in the organization about the direction that the organization is going to take or if it's an advocacy organization or another organization that might support a particular initiative in the community, you might find that there are people who support that and people who don't. And some in some cases, including even very large national organizations, environmental and other organizations, mm-hmm. we've seen situations where there has come a, a very... Um, controversial political topic or stance that the organization is either taking or that people wanted to take. And so sometimes if the barrier to membership is too low, then folks who are advancing a particular cause may seek to game the system by getting lots more people to join who have their point of view. But you could also look at that as a natural consequence of having members. And if folks want to join the organization and want to support certain things, then that's what the membership structure allows for.
0: And I think the key here is that you want to be thoughtful about your membership structure. Make sure that whoever you're inviting to be a member, however you're setting it up, is consistent with uh, how you want the balance of power between the members and the board of directors to, to work programmatically for whatever you're trying to do as a charity. So some key takeaways from all of this, check your articles of incorporation or your articles of organization. Don't rely on the bylaws, which everyone's more familiar with. Have somebody go back and look at the history of this and identify if you have members and who they are well before you need them so that you're not doing this in an emergency situation. Uh, If you do have voting members, be sure that the criteria for membership are clear so that you can define who those members are and be certain when you have them act that they have effectively acted as members.
1: And also keep in mind that when you're going to be reaching out to them to come to meetings or to vote, you'll need to contact them and give them notice in some way. So you want to think about how that's going to work based on how you've defined who your members are.
0: That's right. Make sure that you understand what the members' rights are under your local law. Consult with an attorney on that. Uh, And make sure that your organization is, in fact, holding the member meetings, if you have members, and getting the number of votes necessary to effectively appoint board members and take any other action so if you'd like any more information on this topic please see our frequently asked questions on our website thank you very much for listening if you want to reach us you can find our contact information on the Himalayan Barnes website at himbar.com you can also find more podcasts on our website or subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts thank you
1: As lawyers, I want to let you know that this podcast is provided solely for informational purposes and is not meant to be taken as specific legal advice. You should consult your own legal counsel for any specific questions.